you all know me for a while. Um, some of you are just getting to know me. I grew up in a faith tradition um, where I heard about hell every Sunday. Uh, of all the things my church believed, that was certainly one of them. I don't avoid talking about hell. My uh, approach to preaching and, and, and scripture is um, if something's in a text, I'll preach it. Uh, if something's not in a text, I don't feel compelled that I have to import it um, every week. Um, and today testifies to the fact that I can't keep a calendar because I, I didn't realize I was going to preach a sermon on hell on Mother's Day. Um, it's not a commentary on life, the life of a mother. Um, this week is the second out of four where I'm building an argument. Chapter 8 of John is very difficult, very thick. And so today is but one piece of the puzzle. Last week we talked about Jesus, where he went and what he did after his resurrection and ascension. Um, and we summed it up this way, that Jesus inherited his father's house. Jesus returned to his father's house, and we described that in four ways. We described it as a location, a state, a relationship, and a purpose. First of all, Jesus has returned to the location where his father lives, which is heaven. That's where Jesus is now, and that's a state. Jesus continues on in the eternal life that he always shared with God the Father and God the Spirit. Um, it's also a relationship that he's enjoying right now. So Jesus lives on in the joy-filled intimacy of a perfect relationship with his Father. And also he fulfills a purpose there. He's not twiddling his thumbs. So Jesus, as he did before and during his earthly mission, he is actively carrying out his Father's will. All of this Jesus inherited from his Father when he ascended into heaven. And why? Because he was a son of the Father, and because he was always faithful to his Father's message and mission. So he inherited that after his resurrection. But as we continue in John chapter 8, we find a concerning reality. So look with me in verse 21 of chapter 8. So Jesus said to them again, I'm going away, and you'll seek me, and you'll die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you're from below, I'm from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. In verse 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave doesn't remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So Jesus tells the crowd they cannot share in his inheritance. Where he's going, they cannot come. Why not? Well, unlike Jesus, they're not children of God. And unlike Jesus, they were not faithful to the Father's message and mission in the world. They won't inherit it because it's not theirs and because they don't deserve it. And in these statements of Jesus, we find a frightening reality that if a person dies apart from Christ, we will go to our Father's house. But I'm not talking about heaven. Because apart from Christ, we are not children of God. 
No doubt you regularly hear people say, oh, well, we're all children of God. We're all God's children. It is a well-meaning statement about humanity generally that's intended to communicate the value and dignity of every human being. I agree with the conclusion, but not the premise. Every human being, regardless of their history, their story, their present, every human being has intrinsic value and worth and dignity because they were created in the image of God. But that does not mean that we are all children of God. To be a child communicates an intimate, undying connection, right? Moms, you know this. My kids will always be my kids no matter what. But apart from Christ, we do not have that familial relationship with God. Why not? We have to go back to the beginning to see. What happened when Adam sinned in the garden? Genesis 3 tells us he was kicked out of the father's house. It says, Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, Yahweh God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What is Moses telling us here in Genesis chapter 3? He's telling us this, that Adam and his family, and that includes us, we were kicked out of the Father's house. Jesus inherits the Father's house. We were kicked out of the Father's house, and that has four different aspects to it. First, as sinners, location-wise, we cannot be in the presence of a holy God. God is goodness and justice personified, and his wrath rightly burns against sin. So it is actually in our best interest not to be in his presence. As such, Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. You can see this throughout the scriptures. People come into the presence of God unbidden or unworthily, and they get incinerated. Oddly, that's not the reason given in Genesis 3. It's true, but it's not the reason given in Genesis 3. Why does Genesis 3 say that they were kicked out of the Father's house? Well, if Adam and his family had remained in the garden, they would have had access to God's provision of life through the tree of life, and they would have lived forever in a state of fallenness. So last week I talked about eternal life, the nature of eternal life, its state. I could have been more clear. What I said last week caused unnecessary confusion. I got questions from people, and I want to clarify some of what I said. So first of all, every human being consists of two parts, a body and a soul. You can think of it as material and immaterial. And it's interesting that when God kicks Adam and his wife out of the garden, it's so that they can't eat from the physical tree of life and live forever in their bodies. What's up with that? I could bore you with conjecture, but I think a more relevant point is found in Revelation chapter 22, where John tells us what the new heavens and new earth will be like one day. When Jesus comes back and heaven and earth are merged into two, John tells us this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the land through the middle of the, of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. 
The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, does this literally mean that when Jesus comes back and earth and heaven are merged, that the tree of life is going to be there so that we can eat from it and live forever? Maybe. (laughs) Revelation's tricky. But there's a more relevant point. God, as the source of existence and life, has the power to give life and to take it away. So, yes, bodies die. But if God wants a body to live forever, he can give it everlasting life. And he can do it however he wants, using a tree or not. But what about your soul? Isn't your soul immortal? Doesn't every soul live on forever? Well, yes and no. The 17th century Puritan John Flavel summed it up well when he said this, God only has immortality, as the apostle speaks in 1 Timothy 6, 16. Our souls have it as a gift from him. He that created our souls out of nothing can, if he please, reduce them to nothing again. But he has bestowed immortality upon them and produced them in a nature suitable to that his appointment, fitted for an everlasting life. So that though God by his absolute power can, yet he never will annihilate them, but they shall and must live forever in endless blessedness or misery. Death may destroy these mortal bodies, but it cannot destroy our souls. This is what I was trying to communicate last week. We are not immortal. We are not eternal. Only God is. And if a person believes in Christ and receives eternal life, they're receiving a gift from God that is native to God and alien to us. We are tasting of something that is neither natural to us nor deserving, to, uh, nor deserved by us. So Adam and his wife, think about this, this conjecture again. Adam and his wife might have lived in the garden for thousands or millions of years in God's presence, eating from the tree of life. But the fact is, At some point, they were kicked out of the father's house so they could no longer have access to the life that is in God and that is offered through God. But that leads to two final aspects of Adam's exclusion and also ours. Adam and his family no longer enjoyed an intimate familial relationship to the father. We were kicked out of the family. And because Adam and his family failed to trust and honor God, we were given over to a life of difficulty, toil, and vanity. But when they were kicked out, that wasn't all that happened. It wasn't just exclusion from one family. In fact, through their sin, they became members of a different family altogether. Adam didn't trust and obey God. Instead, he trusted and obeyed the serpent. And in so doing, he joined a new family with a different father, the great serpent, our accuser and tempter, Satan. Look at verse 39. The crowd answers, Jesus, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality, which is intentionally a jab at Jesus, right? We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. 
I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and doesn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So the father from whom we will get our inheritance is the one to whom Adam bound us, Satan. So Jesus unearths this frightful truth. We're not all children of God. We are all children of Satan. Even those who've descended from Abraham are bound to a family of violence, deceit, and sin. And because of that, we cannot inherit what Jesus will inherit. Anytime I hear people say, can you believe what's happening in the world today? You just read this paragraph and say, yes. It's the same thing that's been happening for thousands and thousands of years. Apart from Christ, every human being will inherit their father's house. And what do we inherit from Satan? What is our father's house? It's also a location. Our father's house is the everlasting fire prepared for the devil. Look at verse 21. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. One interesting thing about this verse in the original text is that the word you, every time it's used in this verse, is actually a plural. So we could have like a Southern English standard version of this and say y'all. So we could read it like this. I'm going away and y'all will seek me and y'all will die in your sin. So y'all is plural and the sin is singular, right? So there is a sin that we all share And that shared sin that we all have will keep us from being able to go to heaven with Jesus. And what is that sin? Well, for starters, it's the sin of Adam for which we are all guilty. When Adam sinned, we all became sinners. We all became guilty of sin. And that sinful guilt of that act damns us all. If we're not saved from that sin, we will die in that sin. And what is it? What is the nature of this sin? It's very simple. It's distrust of God. It's rebellion against God. It's believing Satan's lies rather than believing God's truth. And the cost of that sin is death and hell. In Matthew 25, Jesus teaches a parable about the final judgment when every one of us will come face to face with Jesus and give account for our lives. And Jesus says this, Then the Son of Man will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Apart from Christ, this is what every human being will inherit. As Jesus inherits his father's location, so also humans will inherit their father's eternal location. The eternal fires of hell. Punishment for our shared sin of unbelief and rebellion against God, and Satan will be there with us too. But we won't, and for the record, he's not like running the show. I know that's what Looney Tunes says. He will be under God's wrath there as well. But we won't inherit simply a location from our Father. We're also going to inherit a state, the never-ending punishment of death and hell. 
If you talk to an unbeliever about death, what do they think death is? Merely a cessation of existence. They expect that when death comes, they will simply pop into non-existence to no longer be. The biblical reality of death is much more terrifying. Death is not ceasing to be. No, death is sharing in the devil's fate, eternal punishment in hell. So while our body will die and waste away, the soul continues on. And soul death is not to cease existing. Soul death is to go to hell. But what about at the resurrection? At that point, does everybody in hell just kind of cease to exist? Well, Jesus is painfully and terrifyingly clear in his response to that question. In John 5, he says, do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, all who are in the tombs, will hear the Son of Man's voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and, the, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So when a person dies, if they don't, apart from Christ, uh, when a person dies, their soul goes to hell. And when Jesus comes back, every human being who has ever died will come back from the dead. Some are raised to live forever with God in a united heaven and earth. Others are raised from the dead to exist under the justice and wrath of God, body and soul forever. Revelation 20 calls that the second death. This is the inheritance of every human being apart from Christ. And it's the, this is the opposite of life. This is death. To never be set free from sin and its consequences. To forever endure the righteous wrath of God. And of course, this implies a certain kind of relationship to God. And it implies a wretched sense of purpose. We will perish at enmity with God, along with the world and Satan. And we will receive the vanity that we pursued in this life as our inward brokenness and addiction to sin only deepen. One of the great horrors of hell is that we continue in our unregenerate state. In hell, our rebellion toward God will only grow. It's not that our sin will be burned away from us. No, our sin will only expand because our hearts remain unchanged. In eternity, our hatred for God will be ever increasing in response to his just nature. This is death. This is what it means to be at odds with God and to have a vain existence. As was said of Judas, it would be better to have never been born than to die and go to hell. The unbelieving masses are right in their fantasy that non-existence is better than an existence in hell. Yet this is what every human being, me included, you included, this is what every human being will inherit apart from Christ, will inherit our Father's house. But why? Why is this our inheritance? Well, we received our father's inheritance because of Adam's sin. Adam's sin has put us outside the family of God. Adam's sin has plunged us into the guilt of his own sin. And it has broken us inwardly so that we are sinful by nature. His sin killed us. So what Adam did in the garden, though it may seem a little thing, for the record, that's what everyone says about their sin when they're trying to justify it. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. What Adam did in the garden undid us at every level. And Paul expresses it this way in Romans 5. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So humans are not born innocent, and then they're counted guilty of the sins that they commit. No, 
Paul says that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. We are born guilty because of Adam's guilt. And that would be enough already to send us to our father's house. But beyond that guilt we receive from Adam, we are also broken inwardly. Our nature is bent against God. Our hearts are rebellious against God and his ways from birth. We desire to be our own lords and the lords of everyone and everything around us. This is the way of the world. Look at verses 23 and 24. Jesus said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So now we have sins, plural. We'll die in the shared sin that we all have together. But what are these plural sins? Well, the singular sin of Adam that we all share in replicates itself in us. What Adam did... We all do, and because of that, we are bound to die in our sins. Now, unless you hate Adam for his choice and think he would have done differently, let us redirect your Oedipal hatred toward our true enemy, our deceitful father. Look at verse 44. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer. From the beginning and doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. If there's anyone to hate or to rage against in all of this, it's Satan. He who tempted us in the garden still tempts us today. He is our murderer. Why did he do what he did? I think the answer is actually very simple. Satan, who had already rebelled against God and had already been condemned to hell, wanted somewhere to direct his rage. And what better place than to aim his hatred at God's prized possession? Humanity. The people that he made in his image for his own glory. The people made to live with God, to love God, to glorify God. So Satan, in his hatred, deceived us and murdered us in the garden by tempting us. So as the millstone of God's wrath condemned him to hell, he grabbed us by the heel to try to drag us down with him. Now, this doesn't give us a pass, as though we're not culpable for our sin. Adam didn't make us do it, and Satan didn't make us do it. We have all freely participated in our sin. I mean, listen to how Jesus describes it in verse 31. We know that God doesn't listen. Oh, I'm wrong, sorry, wrong chapter. That's chapter 9. Go, go back. Verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we're offspring of Abraham and never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We freely participate in the sinful tradition of Adam, which only further addicts us to sin. We are its slave. And by our own choices, we further enslave ourselves to it. Sin's like a spider's web. You mess with it, you're only going to get tangled up more. I have stood before this congregation so many times and warned you. I've looked the members of this church dead in the eye and told them the truth about sin. And yet so many have not listened. So many members of this church have in this room ignored the warnings against sin and they paid the price for it. 
So brothers and sisters, please listen to what I'm about to tell you. Sin will destroy you. You might think a little sin here or there is not going to be a problem. You might think the key is to do more good than you do bad. That is a deception from the devil who hates you and wants to ruin your life. Even if you're a Christian and your eternal fate is secure, if you entertain sin in this life, it will ruin you. I've watched it happen. It'll ruin your family. It'll ruin your work. It will ruin everything. Sin will destroy you. And sometimes it only takes one time. Because here's the problem with sin. It addicts us. It enslaves us. You can't sin and get away unscathed, unaffected, unaddicted. When you give in to temptation, it only makes later temptation stronger. When you give in to fleshly desire, it only makes the flesh stronger. It's like the slave putting on more chains. It's like the debtor increasing his debts. It's digging deeper into your grave, not realizing that you're burying yourself. Every time we sin, we're believing Satan's lies rather than believing God's truth. And what is the effect of that? The solution, the situation that we inherit from Adam is further worsened by our own actions. This is the nature of sin. And I know some of you are listening or hearing me right now and you're not listening. You're not believing me. You want to ignore me because your sin feels fun and enjoyable, and even harmless. Listen, if you do not repent, there will come a day when you make a decisive choice to sin, and the consequences of that sin will destroy you like a flood. So please listen to me. I love you. God loves you. Your sin will destroy you. You are a captive to it. Perhaps you've even grown to love your captor, but in the end, you will lose everything if you're not set free from your sins. But where is there hope for that? How can we be set free? Left to ourselves, there is no hope. Just look at Adam's family. What happened in the next generation? His firstborn son became a murderer, just like his grandfather, Satan. Sin lies crouching at every turn, waiting to pounce on us. We are altogether lost. If you're listening and you feel the weight of your chains, if you hear me today and you know that you're without hope, if you tremble at the thought of what you will inherit from Satan, listen to me now. There's only one logical, reasonable, rational response to what Jesus tells us in this text. Ask the question, how can I be saved from this sin? How can I escape my father's inheritance? So let's turn again to the words of Jesus, verses 34 through 36. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave doesn't remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. There's only one way to be saved from our fate. We're not sons of God anymore. We're slaves of sin, and we will inherit our Father's house, but the Son of God can set us free. You can be saved, not just of the horrible fate you will inherit, that the whole world will inherit. You can be set free from the indwelling, addicting, enslaving power of sin today. But how? How can we be saved from sin? How can we be set free? I said it last week. I'll say it again through trusting Christ 
his inheritance can be made our own. Now, I'm going to unpack this more fully next week, but I don't want you to leave today without hearing this good news. The good news that I often missed when I was a kid when I heard sermons like this one. Verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you will abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What is this truth that will set us free? What is this truth that if we know it and believe it will set us free? The truth is Jesus. What does that mean? Look again at verse 21. So he said to them, I'm going away and you'll seek me and you'll die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you're from below. I'm not, uh, I'm from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. This is the truth. He says, believe that I am he. And what does that mean? It's very simple. He's been saying it throughout the gospel. Who is Jesus? He's the Messiah of God. He's the king who came to save the world from sin. He's the son of God who died for sinners and who came back from the dead victorious over sin and death and hell. Believe that this message is true. Believe that God raised him from the dead. Believe that Jesus is Lord of all and follow him if you will. You can be saved from the horrid fate of the world. You can be saved from the inheritance of, of Satan. In fact, you can inherit what Christ deserved. Jesus came not to condemn the world. We were condemned already. He came that we might be saved, and the Son can make you free. You can have the life that you were made for now and in eternity. You can be restored to the state of Adam where you can have a relationship with God, a a relationship of joy and intimacy. In fact, you can have something even more than that. His Holy Spirit comes to live within you, and your relationship with him is unending. And you can have the sense of purpose that you were made for. You can live all of life to God's glory. And then one day, when you die, you will experience the beauty of being with God face-to-face with Jesus in his Father's house. What must you do to be saved? There's nothing for you to do. Only believe the promise that Jesus has made. Cast yourself at his feet. Submit to his lordship and you will be saved from the inheritance of all humanity. Let's pray. Father, we trust you to do your work with your word. Pierce the hearts of those who are here this morning who are lost, who have not been set free from their sin. And Holy Spirit, awaken them with faith and fear and love and trust that they would run to the cross of Christ and in him find everything they need. And Lord, for those of us who already know Christ, Lord, may we have our hearts broken for the plight of our friends, our family members who don't know Christ yet. And may we go with the good news of his saving work to the ends of the earth. Lord Jesus, you came to set the world free, and we pray that you would do it even now. Set free these men, women, boys, and girls from their sin, that they might know the love of your Father. 
This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.